Support for the podcast comes from Canva. Presenting to a group of your colleagues can be nerve-wracking, so why not ease some of that anxiety with Canva? Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and that's it. You're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work. Welcome to the Vergecast, the flagship podcast of turning off Wi-Fi on all of your devices and putting on tinfoil hats. I'm your friend David Pierce. Russell Brandom is here. Hi, Russell. Hi. And this is a this is very special Vergecast episode. This is is this the second week of Cybersecurity Week, Russell? Is this like Infrastructure Week? It's kind of every. Week? I, well, I, it's hard because for me, every week is Cybersecurity Week. That's fair. And it should be for you too. <laughs> but here here on the Vergecast, today is Cybersecurity Week, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we were thinking about a bunch of things to do, and we decided that the best thing we could do is just see what everyone wanted to know about. So we opened up the Vergecast hotline. We got a bunch of really great questions. You and I have been doing a bunch of research and prep and talking to folks, and we are going to just roll through some of the most interesting and popular questions we got. It's going to be fun. I'm, I'm very excited. I've been on some weird rabbit holes in getting ready for this that I did not expect. I don't know how it's been for you, but it's, I'm, I'm in a weird corner of the internet. Now. Oh, yeah. I've, I've learned about myself <laughs> and cybersecurity. It's beautiful. Isn't that, it's really the same thing if you think about it. It's really no, beautiful. No, no they're, dif- they're different. <laughs> um, all right, let's get to our first question, which I think, let's just start with, I think the one that is actually in a strange way, the easiest to answer, which is from Alex. Hey there, this is Alex uh, from Madison, Wisconsin. I'm walking, walking my dog in the brisk Wisconsin evening, and I have a question about a browser malware extension. So I recently cleansed my computer of something called Bundle, and it was really weird. It, it sort of it, it hit itself by making it so that whenever I tried to access the page to manage my extensions, it just wouldn't go there. It would like redirect the traffic. The question I have is, whenever I tried to search for something in the like Chrome search bar, it would redirect my search to Bing. Why would it do that? What, what benefit does some malware program have of redirecting my search through Bing instead of Google? Also, who uses Bing? Thank you. <laughs> malware victims. There's apparently. so many good questions in here. Yeah, who uses Bing is no one on purpose, but sometimes it happens. We, we've all been there. You just end up on Bing... You don't know how you got there. You don't you don't know where you are, but it's dark outside and you're you're bleeding from somewhere and, and you don't know. Yeah. So I there's a lot to dig into here. I will say the thing that's that that I was kind of coming around to listening to this is a lot of people being savvy about security is sort of knowing implicitly what to trust. So it's like is it sketchy if uh, you know, I'm reading my credit card number out over the phone. Yep. And it's like, well, if you called the restaurant and their thing is down, like, that's not actually that weird. Like, you're probably okay. It's okay to put your credit card number into Amazon.com. Like, it's fine. And and then, like, there's other things where I got a weird email and lots of stuff is misspelled. It's like, that's obviously sketchy. You should You should be careful. I think browser extensions, and particularly bundled browser extensions, because he mentioned that he got this bundle, 
people who work in this stuff have known for a while that this is a real sort of place where scams happen and just yep. it's a mess in there and you shouldn't trust anything. But I don't know if the average user has really gotten around to like the vast majority of browser extensions are actively exploitative and harmful and bad. Well, I'm not sure. Vast majority might be slightly overstated, but it is. There's it, a lot of there's a lot of crap. There's out a there, lot of crap. Is, I guess. What I mean. Yeah. Well, and it's and it's tricky because like over the years, Google Chrome in particular has sort of devoted more and more resources to fighting that. But even still, it's basically like an automated system. And the thing that's crazy about Chrome extensions and browser extensions in general is when you install them, most of them require you to give them access to everything you do inside of your browser. Like in order to do the very basic thing that they want to do, you have to, because there's no like middle setting in many cases, you have to turn on like, sure, read later app. You can see every single thing I do in my browser. And that's just bonkers. And it's like systemically, not just this see, is not but right. Like, you can replace what I'm seeing on the screen with other stuff. Yes. So, you know, they're, they're like the classic joke extension is like, we made it so it replaces the word millennial with snake people. Like, haha, isn't that funny? Uh-huh. It's like, no, this is, you're looking at the website and what you're seeing is something different from what the website is trying to show you. Right. Like, do you not see how this is potentially a problem? We had one of those when I was at Wired. This was during the 2016 election and somebody had downloaded a bunch of like jokey political extensions onto their computer. And one of them replaced every mention of Donald Trump with the phrase tiny hands. And uh, <laughs> and it's like a very funny joke because you're reading the internet. But then they filed a story about Donald Trump and missed one of the times where the browser had changed like in our CMS to tiny hands. So we published a story in which this person had typed Donald Trump and it spit out tiny hands. It was really, it was really something special. Man. Yeah. Okay. So, so what he said bundle, this is, I, I did want to, I want to see yes. on this too, because a lot of what happens is you're talking about Chrome. So like, Chrome is a very popular browser, as you know. Uh, it's free, and a common scammy thing is people will bundle free software with this predatory unwanted software. If we're allowed to call it malware, spyware, adware, it like, gets into weird legal territory. Sure. But basically, there's the software you want, and you should just get that, but instead you're getting this bundle that has a bunch of other bad things in it. Um, and that happens very often with browsers, I suspect that what is happening here, the reason it's sending him to Bing, is there is some... I don't think Microsoft is purposefully paying this, like, adware company. Like, I don't think that that's what's happening. But it is broadly true that, like, Google pays Mozilla to have the default Firefox search mm -hmm. go to Google.com. Because Google makes money through advertising when people search things on Google.com. And so for a while, they were paying Apple. I mean, they're, they're still paying Apple, right, for, for the iPhone searches mm -hmm. that direct to Google.com. Billions of dollars. So I suspect that one way or another, that money is going from Bing to these scammy people with lots of intermediaries that make it hard for Bing to know who exactly they're paying. Yeah, I think that's right. And that, like, to be clear, all of that can be done without Microsoft 
doing anything nefarious or even anything at all. Like, I think it's very unlikely that Microsoft is like loading adware into Chrome extensions. It'd be amazing if that were true, but I mean, it'd be amazing. <laughs> I think it's, I think it's probably a Microsoft executive who had had too much and sort of went Joker mode. And then they're like, we don't know what happened to him. <laughs> just call it bundle. Leave it alone. He just makes, he just makes adware now. No, but it is one of the main things that these extensions do is they will insert ads onto websites in such a way that if you then click those ads, they make money, right? So like the main two things a browser extension that you don't want will do is collect all of your data and sell it to somebody or put ads into your experience or replace the ads you're seeing with other ads and make money that way. So it's like 98% of the time, it's like if some hack is happening on the internet, it's somebody trying to find like a cheap way to make money, right? Like that's usually what this is. And In this case, that is kind of the overwhelming thing. And one of the things that I've seen a lot of, and there was this big story, uh, I forget when, relatively recently, where McAfee found a bunch of really well-known Chrome extensions, including the one Netflix party, where you can like co-watch Netflix with your friends. What Netflix party was doing was all the things Netflix party was supposed to do, but then also doing things like adding affiliate links when you go to e-commerce websites so that it makes money. And all this is just like sneakily happening in the background and you never see it because it's able to get in between you and the browser because that's what Chrome extensions do. And so it's just that kind of thing that it's like, often you might not even notice, but they are they are aware of what you're doing and they're either changing it in some way or taking something from you. So my read of it is not that like all Chrome extensions are dangerous. I do think the fact that they automatically update in the background without telling you is dangerous, but also like it is the kind of thing that you should be super, super, super aware of what you're downloading and make sure the advice I always give people is never search in the store. Always go from like, if you're looking for an apps Chrome extension, go to the app and find the link to the Chrome extension from there. Cause if you go into the Chrome web store and search for an app, you're going to get a hundred things that all look the same. 99 of them are scammy and one of them is real. And it's often very hard to know. So if you need to have a Chrome extension and you should use only the bare minimum for all the reasons we've been describing, like find it from somewhere else. Don't just go hunting through the Chrome store for things that seem cool because like there be dragons. Yeah. And and if you're listening to this and, and being like, what can I do? Like go to your Chrome, you know, check out what the extensions are. It's Chrome colon forward slash forward slash extensions, Right. But you can see, it'll just show you everything and you can like a- absolutely delete anything you do not recognize or that you're like, oh, I sort of remember installing that, but I don't really use it. Like you should really have as few as possible. Yeah, 100%. If you if you don't use it like every day, you probably shouldn't have it. It's It's worth the like extra two clicks in the browser to not have this stuff sitting between you and everything you do on the internet is my general read. Totally. All right. Should we do another one? Yeah, let's let's move on. So let's see. We have we have a couple in a row about passwords. So let's let's knock those out first. First, we have one from Eduardo. Let's hear that. Hello, the Verge team. Um, so I got a question about passwords. I use different passwords for every single app or website that I log into, but I'm deeply into the Apple ecosystem. So my question is, should I go into the suggested passwords or should I just keep using my own different passwords for everything? Is there any drawback on going into the um, Apple passwords or will I be able to do everything I've been doing so far? Thanks. 
Okay, so first of all, Eduardo, kudos for using different passwords for everything. That immediately puts you ahead of almost everybody, so congratulations. This is the question that sent me down the deepest, weirdest rabbit hole of any of the questions we got. But before I get real weird about random number generators, which is going to happen, what are your thoughts, Russell? Yeah, I mean, I think, so partially this is like a question about password strength, right? Because if he's coming up with these different passwords, they're presumably sort of human comprehensible passwords, not just random strings. And so it's like, is it better to use the random strings that Apple is using? And I don't think it's a huge deal. I think the main, so the the place where your password strength is most likely to be tested is you can't just guess millions of passwords at once on like the Gmail login screen. Like they will, they will catch on (laughs) if they're like, this seems like a robot is just doing one, two, three, and then the next one. But occasionally hashes, hashed versions, so a hash is what the website is checking your password against. It sort of has a hashing function that does a special dance to the password that you inputted, and then it checks it against, well, this is what all, this is what the correct password should look like after the special dance, so that it doesn't just immediately know what your password is and have that information for everything. And so you're not supposed to be able to work back from the hash to the actual password. But if you already know what the password is, or you have, if if you like check a bunch of really common passwords, and then that can help you crack the hashing algorithm and undo the other ones, then it's a problem. But like the difference between a fairly uncommon word that's in the dictionary and a couple like random characters and the complete gobbledygook that Apple spits out is just really not that significant. And I wouldn't worry about it. I think the main question is like, are you more likely to lose it because it's not automatically being logged by Apple's password manager? But that also doesn't seem like a huge difference since it sounds like this system is working for him. Yeah, I think I agree with all of that, actually. And I think the the two parts of this just jumped out to me are one, the like convenience thing you just talked about. And I think to me, the biggest downside of using Apple's the the whole like keychain system within Apple is it's very convenient, but it's also tied to all of your other Apple stuff, right? And like one very common sense cybersecurity piece of advice is don't have all your eggs in one basket. And so the idea of if somebody gets into my iCloud, they can also get into my passwords should make you nervous. And there's a there are good ways to get around that by like protecting your iCloud and multi-factor authentication and all that stuff. But like I would I would say the only reason not to do it is that A, it's not very cross-platform. So if you use other devices, pass uh keychain doesn't work all that well, and it is attached to all of your other Apple stuff. So do it that way you will. To your point about the randomness, I think you're exactly right. I think my worry would be that for somebody like our friend Eduardo here, that when they say I have different passwords for everything, what they actually mean is like variations on a theme where it's like, mm, I have yeah. one password that is like cool kids. And then I have another one that's cool kids with two S's. And then I have one that's cool kids six. And that is not great password hygiene. It's better than having the same password for everything, but it's not great password hygiene because- well. Go ahead. Yeah, and and it's worth going into what the attack is there. So there are these like LinkedIn was breached in like 2009 or something, 2011. It's it was a while ago. Uh this is all public. This is not, I'm not blowing up any spot. <laughs> but then this means that like anyone on the internet who wants it basically by now has the LinkedIn password I was using in 2011, <laughs> yes. right? 
And so if I was using that for anything else, when they were able to get to it, they probably went through, you know, well, what's Russell's Gmail account? What's Russell's other account? Let's see if the same password works, right? right? And a lot of times they have this password and the breach isn't public. No one knows about it. And so they're likely to have sort of find out about it before you do. Now, are they going to try, well, okay, what about Russell's password, but the number's slightly different? Exactly. What about Russell's password and there's some extra S's? On one hand, like, they're doing this with 10 million passwords and just running through the list because it's fairly, it's rare that you get a hit. It's just like, it's worth it if we get a hit. On the other hand, they have a lot of time and not a lot of these breach things, so they're probably <laughs> going to try as much as they can get away with. And that's that's why the password hygiene of, like, here's this slight alteration is not great if a password very, very similar to that gets breached. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think the the deep rabbit hole I went down was about pseudo-random number generators and this idea that even things that purport to give you random sets of characters are not random, right? Like computers on their own can't do random. There is a logic. So what they do is they start basically from what's called a seed and then run an algorithm to do what is this, what looks a lot like randomness. But if you can figure out what that seed is, you then know where the randomness started from and you can start to figure it out. So Bruce Schneier, who is a, a security researcher who has done a lot of work on this over the years, a thing he talks about that I like and I think is a useful framework to think about all of this is basically like degrees of entropy, right? Like if I, if all of my passwords are one last character off, that's one degree of entropy, right? If you know all of my password except that one character, all you have to do is figure out one thing. But if you don't know any of my password because it's all different, you're starting from nothing and suddenly the like work you have to do to get there is much, much stronger. So I think in a case like this, what I went, the rabbit hole I really went down is like, is Apple's pseudo-random number generator better than the competition's pseudo-random number generators? And the answer is like, not really. There are a lot of very good ones out there. And the real question is just about a lot of other things that actually like the random number generators are not likely what's going to screw up your passwords over time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's like, that's like your, your like, is this plane I'm getting on safe? <laughs> right. And they're like, well, let's look at the fuel. Exactly. Who's using the best fuel? It's like, it's, it's, it's probably, yeah, it's not like, going to come down to Is that. it information? Like, cool. Yes. But is, is it, is it going to be the difference? Almost certainly not. But generally, like what I would say is, is think about entropy, right? And if you want to keep your password as secure as possible, have as much entropy between your different passwords as you possibly can. And if that means letting Apple fill it out for you and save it in ways that everyone agrees are solid and secure, that works. I use one password, which I love very much. Um, I, I will stand for one password to anyone who listens. It's a really good password manager. There are a lot of good ones out there. And I think having them be randomly selected for me, I don't know most of my passwords and I like it that way. And I feel like that's, that's where everyone should be. Let it, let a system know my passwords and then I don't have to. Absolutely. Um, all right, let's move on. So what's the, what's the other, yeah, what's the other password? I mean, <laughs> our next one is even weirder and I'm very excited. It's from Leon. Let's hear it. Hey, Vergecast team, it's Leon from Virginia. What's up with websites having a maximum character limit for their passwords? Like, why do I have to create a password with a maximum of eight or 12 characters? Why is that safe? Thanks. This is the other question that sent me down a crazy rabbit hole. Yeah. <laughs> and it was deeply unsatisfying. It's, I mean, it's not safe, right? Like, broadly, these limits are bad. Security people don't like them. I think that the reason that you see them is kind of 
has to do with making life easier for the architects of these systems more than like security fundamentals. But it sounds like, David, you have a lot of research to, to spill out. No, so you're you're right, but you're missing one piece of the equation, which is users. The simple truth of the matter, based on all the research I've done and all the people I've talked to, is that fundamentally, if you allow people to have 500 character passwords, they will forget them, they will type them incorrectly, they will call customer service to reset their passwords more often, and that will suck for everyone involved. And so I went down looking for like really useful technical answers, and what it seems like is, on the one hand, you're right that like, and especially in the early days of the internet, there was a lot of like technological systems that just couldn't handle that much data coming in at the same time. Like if you're sending somebody a one megabyte password, that's a lot. And it was especially a lot many years ago. So, well, and also that like, remember there's the hashing algorithms. Like if you can know the amount of information very precisely, it lets you it just sort of smooths things out. Totally. Yeah. And then there, that just sort of became the norm. So people kept doing it. But then I was looking and like the, the National Institute of Standards and Technology has a bunch of rules about passwords. And what they actually recommend is that you allow at least 64 characters because yeah. uh, the, the kind of new password theory is like what you don't need is just a bunch of like random hexadecimal stuff. What you need is like a long, relatively random string of words that you can remember that that's actually the most useful thing. Like if it's five I words mean, so in a row, I will, you can do it. I will say at the risk of compromising my own security. So this is the <laughs> passphrase, yes. right? Think of some phrase that you remember. And I'm a word guy. So I remember phrases. Like there are a lot of phrases where I'm like, oh yeah, that one line really meant something to me. And so when we, I was setting up my like work account for Vox Media, I did the phrase and I was like, I'm not going to, you know, this is going to be in my password manager. I'm not going to type this in that much. And then as it went on, it sort of propagated until now. It's the thing I need to type in every time I wake up my laptop. <laughs> and it's like, it's like a bunch of words long. Like it's over 50 characters. It's it. And, and also if I can't see it, I'll like have a typo sometimes. So it'll mm -hmm. take me like two or three tries and I'm just trying to like mute whatever song is playing. It's really uh so that's a that's a cautionary tale. I it's guess. just like the first chapter of Moby Dick every time you want to wake up your computer. Oh my god, how did you guess? <laughs> no, but I mean it's it's really like yeah, I'm trying not to do it. I'm not I'm trying not to put any information out there that would that would make it easy for the Good hackers. Idea. But um yeah, it's uh so think about the fact that you'll have to maybe type this in a lot. But I think, yeah, in general, it is, I, I think I would agree, bad form if they only allow you to have something like eight characters. What does seem to be true is there are pretty severe diminishing returns after about 20. Mm. I don't know if that's a magic number, but it, that that one kind of came up a bunch that like the difference between a 20 character password and a 200 character password is not massive in terms of like, can a regular person brute force their way into getting your password? Whereas the difference between eight and 20 is when it goes from like hard but feasible to hard and sort of infeasible. So I think yeah, if if you're only allowed to have short passwords, you should you should yell at them to let you have longer ones. Is what I would say. Yeah, cool. Do you have short passwords? I feel like I just shamed you by accident. Um, you're changing I, all your passwords. I, I, I will right say now. I sh I changed from on the in the iPhone unlock. They give you the option of four numbers, which the security people really don't like, or six numbers, which is you know, it's powers of 10, yeah. or it's 100 times more secure. 
or this alphanumeric thing, which you're going to type in on a keyboard, which is probably the best thing to do. But I mean, who has the time? I'm not going to. Yeah, honestly, like it's I'm a four. I'm a four digit iPhone passcode person and I'm ashamed of it. Like I am. It's not great. And and the best part is it defaults to six and it makes you change to four when you set up your phone. It's like, do you want to make a stupid decision right now? And every time I'm like, yes, I do. Thank you for asking. <laughs> I'm very happy to do so. Yeah. All right. We need to take a break and then we're going to come back and answer a couple more questions, including with our very good friend, Neelai Patel. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Canva. They say Rome wasn't built in a day, but you know what you can get built in a day? Your creative deck. You can generate creative decks to use for all your important presentations with Canva. Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. You want a sales presentation for a tech company? Done. Create an employee onboarding plan? No problem. Just type it in and watch Canva work its magic. You'll have generated options in seconds. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver at work. So whatever you do at your job, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You can generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. It's AI for every department. It's easy to learn. It's even easier to use. And because it's built in Canva presentations, you can stay focused on the task at hand with no app switching. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Design for work. Okay, next up, we have... A question I think a bunch of us got very excited about. This is from our friend Chuck, who has a question about babies. Hey, guys. Um, This might be very niche, so maybe it doesn't go on the show, but maybe it could go on an article sometime. Um, I have a newborn, and I don't know how to keep her safe from online stuff. Like, do I need to do anything? Do I do nothing? Um, So, yeah, I just, I don't want to leave doors open, but... Yeah, I don't, there's nothing good out there that says like, do this and you'll be safe. Thanks. Love the show. Bye. Okay. This question gives me so many feelings and you can just, you can just feel the like vibes and energy from this person. Neelai Patel is here to help us answer this question. Hello. Neelai, you are our resident baby expert. Congratulations. That's bad for America. (laughs) (laughs) You are all that stands between the horrors of the internet and the children of America <laughs> and <laughs> some of Canada. They we're are the whole show to parent blogging. That's what we're going to do. Yeah. Here. I will say Neil has been threatening to do this ever since he had children. So it's, it's going to happen eventually. Well, I feel like we, we could start almost anywhere here, but there's like, is there stock parenting advice for what you should do? Like, cause there, there, there comes a time when like your kid is going to start wanting to be online and you have to do things about that. But we're talking even way before then this is the, like, they don't even know what the internet is yet. Do you have responsibilities to them? Which I think is a super interesting question. Yeah. Well, David, you're about to have a kid. So you're going to become the new, am I allowed to say that on the show? Do the people know? The people don't know. They know now. I would, this is, this is as good a time as any. My wife is due in December and I'm going to be the Virgin's oh next baby correspondent. Congratulations. That's great. Thank you. You gotta, you gotta rotate in a new one because the kids keep getting relentlessly <laughs> older. True. It's a real problem. <laughs> so here's what I would say to everybody. Almost everything about being a first time parent is just how afraid you choose to be and how much you allow corporate America to prey on that fear. 
The best advice I ever got was from my friend Spencer Hall, who some of you may know from other endeavors on the internet. And he just looked at me very seriously. I think he has like four kids. And he was like, babies are more resilient than you think. And if you just hold that in your head, you're going to be like, just remember, people did this before any technology existed. That's how you got here. So you just like, hold on to that. (laughs) The second thing I'll say much more specifically about computers is once you realize that all of it's designed to prey on your fear, you realize that a lot of like computer products exist to just reassure you, but actually provide you like no additional safety. Mm. So there's like infinity baby monitors and socks and snooze that you can buy. And you just have to decide how much you want to like participate in that universe of things. Our decision was that we didn't want anything that required a user account. We just didn't want to start sharing data about our kid at any moment. So we did not buy a connected baby camera. We bought the Eufy one that's on Amazon. I'm sure by now there are many iterations of it, but there was one that everyone bought, and then Eufy, which is a division of Anchor, came out with like the slightly upgraded riff on that one, <laughs> mm-hmm. and we just, we just have that one, and it works great, and it is you know like a proprietary RF protocol. It's a rock solid in our house, no Wi-Fi involved, and it has a little piece of hardware that's great. So I ca- we carry around a little screen in our house to watch our kid. That is so your your thinking was not only like no user accounts for your kid, but no user accounts related to your kid like because it wouldn't have been it wouldn't have been your kid's name on the ufa or on the baby monitor thing it would have been yours but even still like that crossed the line yeah i wanted i'll use a security term here i wanted to air gap the baby from the internet for as long as possible oh i love that okay that's good right so i didn't want anything connected to the internet near the baby (laughs) for as long as i could hold off Air gap your baby is a Verge t-shirt that needs to exist. <laughs> this is a thing. We're going to make onesies. It's going to say air gapped. It's going to be incredible. One thing you're going to want to do is track a bunch of baby stuff uh, related to a newborn when they eat, when they poop, when they sleep. And there's infinity apps that are, you know, you can log into and you can use them and we don't want to use them. So we use one called Sprout, which syncs uh, the database over iCloud to another phone using a key. There's no user accounts. And they actually advertise it as having no user accounts. So this is like four years ago. We have not tracked our four-year-olds sleeping and pooping. <laughs> We're good. She <laughs> lets us know when it's going to happen. I mean, are, are you weighing it? What What's the fine grain of the data? How much data on the poop are we collecting here? Well, so when you have a newborn, uh, you don't sleep very often. So your memory of what happened when becomes very limited. <laughs> And you're like, did I feed the baby? And you just don't remember. And you certainly don't remember how much or what you fed them. Uh, Because it's like two in the morning. So um, like how many ounces of milk did I feed the baby? Is like, you were just not going to remember this five hours from now. So you just track that stuff. Just have a log between you and your partner. Because ideally one of you is asleep while the other thing is happening. Ideally, I said, sometimes it's just a pure panic situation. (laughs) So we just constantly made choices to keep the kid away from the internet. And at some point, your parenting choice is going to be in order to make this child eat or survive a restaurant or be on an airplane, we're going to give them a tablet and then all of it kind of goes out the window. <laughs> but for us, anyhow, our choice was very much no user accounts, no Wi-Fi connected toys, none of this stuff where I have to become the IT manager of like a very helpless human being's internet presence. Because once you open the door, you're just fully down the road. Yeah. I that. The- the only other big picture question I can think of that it would be useful to ask or to like have answers to pretty early on would be like, how do we 
take and share pictures of our child in a way that makes us comfortable. Yeah. I I will say, so my, I have two nieces and my brother, I think, I was impressed by this, although I think maybe some people would be worried about it. But basically they didn't want to be on Facebook or putting like, have for Facebook to have an accessible record of various pictures of, of the girls. And so, but you want to share it with family. And so they set up this Tumblr that is public to the internet, but that like only cert, like only the family members really have the address to, and it doesn't have their names on it or any like words whatsoever. It's just a public facing webpage on the internet, which I think worked out for them. I mean, the main thing is like, grandma doesn't have to get a Facebook account or like maintain access to a Facebook account, which I think is <laughs> probably good. And like, you know, grandma doesn't really want to see, grandma doesn't want to go on Facebook. She just wants to see pictures of her grandchildren. So yes. it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. I, so I, I don't know if that's like, if that solves every problem, but that is a baby picture hack I have heard. So that one I buy it, right? Because you you're not inside of big tech. Like Tumblr is not big tech. It's like small, struggling tech. Yeah, small <laughs> to medium tech, I think. But yeah. public to the internet terrifies me, right? Like that's it. That's just a URL on the internet that could get picked up. The Clearview AI is looking at pictures. Like who knows? You can't see what's happening. Well, it's not it, but, tied to their names, right? So it's just these pictures of people on the internet. It's true. It could get <laughs> scraped though. I mean, they didn't. So one day this family is going to be in a Walmart looking at like empty photo frames and being like, well, that is us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very unfortunate. So we, we kind of went the other way, which requires more trust, but feels more closed. So we, we started with Apple photos, which seemed very closed, share photo streams, and then more people want to be involved. And then in particular, this thing like grandma wanting to see the photos we wanted to set up digital photo frames that just had the newest photos on them for various people in our family. Mm. So then we switched to Google Photos, which Google will insist is a closed private ecosystem. But we were able to just set up Google Homes and then lots of digital photo frames, like just the ones you can buy, have Google Photos connections. So they just we just have one album that we add photos to and it shows up on picture frames in our various family members' house, and they don't have to do anything. And the more that I, and that feels like I am just in control of that database of pictures, and I am in control of who has access to it, and that feels important to me. As she's gotten older, as Max has gotten older, I've stopped posting her Instagram as much. I feel like babies are fine, and now she's like a person with a personality, and I feel very, like, exploitative of her personality. Like that's just a choice that she's going to have to make over time. And I'm going to tell her not to do it. But, um, well, I mean, if you're, if you're going for the I, Gerber know, sponsorship, when she I was mean, full, she's first born get grand deals and she was first born, she's gotta be like, on the gram. Gotta, we got to get this kid in the catalog. <laughs> um, and then it turns out Benetton doesn't exist anymore. So my one target was gone. <laughs> I don't know. She's got good hair. You could work with that. Yeah. A lot of places to go. Any, are there any other, like, I'm just even trying to think about, like, what are the questions you should be asking early on and, like, conversations you should be having? Are there other big ones we haven't hit on yet? The main ones are really just how public do you want your child's life to be? Yeah. Right? Like, you start to have all these experiences, and it turns out being a parent is, like, among the most universal experience you can have. You can relate to all kinds of people just by talking about your child. That's why people talk about their kids so much. It's very annoying before you have a kid and then you have a kid and you realize why it keeps happening. There's a reason people want to show you photos. It's of kids in the it's weather. Like, like those are the only two things. Yeah. Sort of lots and lots of people have in common. Yeah. Which is great. 
but there's an instinct to do it very publicly on the internet. There's an instinct to profit from it for some people. Like you could be a, a parent YouTuber, like all this stuff. And you got to make that decision early and like hold on to it because otherwise you're, I, I think a lot of people are going to grow up and realize their parents have been talking about them in public for a very long time. And they are not like they lose it. They might lose a sense of agency over who they get to be because there's this rich backstory about their life. And I think you just have to make that decision that I've thought about that a lot with our kid. I've talked to other parents who think about that a lot. I think there's a rich and varied debate about that in the world of the Internet, like in the world of Internet parenting. And so that's the one that I would just encourage people to think about. It's like really hard to see when you have a newborn. It's just a picture of a newborn like. That is kind of a story about you and how much you're not yeah. sleeping, but soon it becomes a story about them and you got to flip that switch. Yeah, I will say the the point that the Internet is just there to make you afraid and sell you stuff is a useful one to remember and has been very useful for me to remember, even in this like we're in the phase now of like trying to figure out like what happens when you give birth and all the things you have to do. And it's like, I've started reading about sleep training. And the only thing I've learned about sleep training is no matter what you do, you're wrong and you're a bad person and you hate your kids. And it costs millions of dollars to buy all the right products to solve all of their problems. And so yeah, I just like, have, every time I go on the internet now, I have to just be like, the internet is here to lie to me and sell me things. And that is what this is for. And I, I am now like, I am everyone's target demo. <laughs> like new parents yeah. are everyone's target demo. Cause you're terrified. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, and you, whatever, whatever you might say about modern society, you don't have all the people around you to keep you from being terrified, which is like a real thing. Um, all right, Neil, I, we need to let you go. We have some more questions to get to, but thank you. And, and, you know, good luck to all of us. Yeah, good luck, dude. <laughs> I'll buy you some booze. Uh, all right, Russell, we have a couple more. We're just going to, we're going to blow through these really fast. One that we didn't technically choose to do here, but I just want to talk about quickly because this this is a thing that comes up a lot in conversations that we have with like regular people thinking about cybersecurity is VPNs. Liam, do we have Ben's question we can play about VPNs? Hey, Verge. Uh, this is Ben. I've been thinking about subscribing to a VPN service, uh, but it's very unclear which one is the best. Some of the most promoted ones like Express and NordVPN have questionable audits. And yeah, just very curious about what VPN service people should subscribe to. Thanks. I love this question because I find it completely impossible. Um, and I feel like we've talked a lot about just deciding who to trust and who not to trust in the course of this episode. Yeah. And I feel like this is sort of the same thing. Like fundamentally, if you get a VPN, you are, it, it, it's like, it's like letting someone into your house, right? Like you're, you are giving them a massive amount of theoretical access to your stuff. And a lot of them say they don't want it. A lot of them say they don't store it, but like you just don't know for absolute certain. And it, it is fundamentally a question of trust. But then if you don't do it, you're trusting, I don't know, all of your browser extensions and you're trusting Google and you're trusting Facebook, which has all this kind of information. Like you just can't browse the internet without somebody knowing. And at some point you just have to decide who you trust the most. And I feel like it gets very nihilistic for me from there, but that's kind of where I land. Yeah. I, it's funny. I was, I was writing about actually in the Wi-Fi coconut piece, there's this question of like how much control does like a router, like if the bad guy is controlling the router that you're logging in through, how, like that's not good. How much of a threat is that? And one of the, I, I was thinking about it and I realized one of the fundamental things you see in internet technology at all sorts of different levels is you're basically using encryption to secure infrastructure. So it doesn't matter 
who's controlling the router. It doesn't matter who's at the ISP. You know, the router, you, you'll have like WPA keys that are keeping it from, from sort of being a point of attack. The ISP, ideally you have SSL and that's that level of encryption. The VPN is kind of like adding another one. And so there's a sense in which the attacks that it helps against are if you are working for a company, like it's corporate security, and they're like, these are the plans to our next hot new airplane, and the bad guys want to steal the plans. Mm -hmm. And so we know exactly where the perimeter is of like who we trust and who we don't. And if the VPN is running through the company, then ideally you're not expanding the trust at, you know, at all because it's it's running through that same infrastructure. It's the same group of people who are going to have access to it. But you can have sort of an extra layer of protection to log in through the conference Wi-Fi and not get injected because the only thing you connect to is this Wi- or, you know, this VPN service, which then hardens the tunnel through the rest right. of it. Having said that, that is not generally how I see people talking about why they're using VPNs. Oh, honestly, the most, maybe this is because I'm hanging with a sketchy crowd, but like the most common thing is people are like, well, this will keep me from getting sued for pirating movies or something. Oh, absolutely. Which is, or this is how I can watch stuff on Netflix that's only available in another country. Those are the two things I hear the most. Right. Well, I mean, so the Netflix geolocation thing that might be robust. I don't think that Netflix is really cracking down on it yet because it would just be so, it would be so much of a pain for them without, they don't really care if this is happening anyway. So, but anything illegal you're doing, if you're paying for a commercial VPN service, it's just another subpoena that the police have to send. So they subpoena the VPN service to then subpoena the ISP to then get to you. And like, maybe it's in Switzerland and so it's harder, but like, if you are the Dread Pirate Roberts or something, this is not going to help you. And I see people talking as if it is. And th th that, that, to me, is like my main experience of engaging with VPNs. Very rarely do I see it lining up with the actual threat model it could protect against. Yeah, that, that totally tracks. And I think, in general, we talked a little bit about VPNs with uh, McKenna a while ago on this show. And one of the things I heard over and over, even from VPN people, is that if you're just a regular person doing regular internet things, you probably don't need one. And even to your point about like, what if the bad guys are on the router? Like, thanks to things like HTTPS, like they can start to know what website I went to, but not what I did there. And that stuff is increasingly encrypted and the internet is, is much harder as a result. And so the, the advice I've gotten from folks is basically like, if you know you have a specific thing that either you need to avoid being seen for or you have a specific thing you need access to that you can't get access to, those are good reasons to get a VPN. But if you're just like a person in a coffee shop worried about security, a VPN, to your point, is not actually going to solve that sort of same mainstream problem. Yeah. Also, I trust my coffee shop more than I trust my family. <laughs> that's To me, that's the pinnacle of, they're so nice. <laughs> yeah, shout out to Russell's Coffee Shop. And somewhere in deep upstate New York, I think. I don't know. Who's to say? <laughs> uh, Russell doesn't tell us where he is. That's his real cybersecurity trick. Uh, yeah, I, I keep operational security. No one knows where I am at any time. Yeah, he's in, a, he's in a dark room with a black background, and no one's allowed to know what he's doing. All right, let's move on. We have one more question to do before we get out of here. It is from Emmanuel. Let's hear it. Hey, Verge, this is Emmanuel. 
I had a question rela- related to your security podcast that's coming up. I- I've always wondered what could a bad website do to me. So, for example, I I clicked on a on a, a bad ad on on Google search results, and I stayed on the website, didn't do anything, then closed my browser, closed the window. What is the worst thing that could have happened to my machine? Could could and what could be installed? Like, what do I have to worry about? Thanks. This is such a good question. And made me realize I also have this question. It made me very worried for Emmanuel's safety. <laughs> like, we're going to find out this is the last communication anyone got. Emmanuel's just Emmanuel. clicking every link everywhere just to see <laughs> like, what could happen. What's the worst? So what's the answer? What is the worst that could happen? Um, I to me, it's like it's like, what if the brakes stopped working on your car? It's like there are so many bad things that could happen. <laughs> I almost don't even want to think about it. It's yeah. like, no, you should be able to use the brain. All right, well, let's let's frame this slightly differently then. Like, yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> I think one one obvious bad thing that can happen to you on a computer is that like you go to a website and it installs a keylogger and takes your credit card information, right? Like that we grant. But I think the what seems to me to be implicit in this question is if I go to a bad website and I leave that bad website before I do anything, can it do anything to my computer? after I leave the website. And the answer to that, I think, is like unequivocally, yes, absolutely, right? Yeah, because you loaded, loading the website. When when we say I'm on the website, what that means is the server has sent this information to your browser and your browser has used that information and sort of executed the files to build the thing that you're looking at, right? But that could have also included, they're like, run this code, it'll make this fancy cool ad that with the little guy who dances around, he's going to love it. And like, it made a fancy cool ad with a guy who danced around and you did love it, but it also installed this malware, which is now like encrypting your entire computer and going to ransomware you Mm -hmm. or just like hang out there for six months and gradually sort of expand its access in the network. I mean, I think the, the tricky thing is once the perimeter has been breached, it's kind of like, well, what mischief do they want to do when they're on the inside? It's like, I I don't know. I hope nothing too bad, but like <laughs> it's out of my control now. Yeah, I, um, I spent a lot of time in prepping for this, talking to people and reading about exploit kits. Oh, yeah. Which is just, my God, terrifying. Uh, and basically, it's it's exactly what we're talking about. The idea is like you, you load this website and what it does is it installs software on your computer that essentially just looks for vulnerabilities, right? And it says like, you know, do you have this technology to play videos in your browser. No. Do you have this one to read PDFs in your browser? Ah, you do. I'm going to use that and just sort of open up a little hole in it and then download whatever I feel like. <laughs> it's like, and it's, it's, it's yeah. just, once it's in it, it does sort of all this different hunting, it finds its place and then it can just sit there and it can wait as long as it needs to. And then it just has access to your computer. And this stuff is like, it, it's dormant forever. It's tiny. It's hard to find. And it just sits there sort of waiting to be activated. And it's gotten really sophisticated to the point where like, like flash, if I'm remembering this right, used to be like the main problem here. Right. And it was like flash was a garbage piece of software it was a very that problem, had, was yeah. full of loopholes and exploits. And every time you would load a flash thing, it was loading a, an app from your computer and running it. And by doing so, they could put code in it and then load other stuff. But there are still a bunch of ways like that into your computer now. Yeah, I would say, I mean, the other thing that classically people were worried about, and this is something that, you know, in the time I've been working at The Verge, HTTPS adoption, including by TheVerge.com, has just gone from sort of zero to 60. Like it was was maybe a third of websites 
in 20, I, it was it was definitely below half, and now we're well over 95%. It's sort of rare that you go somewhere on the internet that doesn't have it. The result of that is these injection attacks where someone is at the ISP or at the router or at sort of tapping into some cable because they're the NSA, and they want to, you're sort of opening a legitimate website, but they are injecting malware into it as sort of turning it into a malicious website. You know, those are still possible, but they're much harder to do. Uh, and so seems to be in many ways things have gotten better, but it still is the case that you should not, like, clicking, the problem is clicking the link to the website. Right. Not like once I'm on the website, what do I do? Yeah. But we should say, and I think I, I think not to like downplay any of this stuff, but I feel like it, it continues to be a useful thing to remind people that like most people get into trouble because they enter information in places that they shouldn't. And this is like what you were talking about earlier about like don't give your credit card over the phone and this like basic stuff. But like anytime you're going to type in your username and password, anytime you're going to click on a link in your email, anytime you're going to type in your social security number or your home address or whatever, like most people get into trouble because they give up information willingly to people they shouldn't like. The malware stuff is real. The exploit kit stuff is real. The stuff they can download is real. But like you are much more likely to get in trouble by reading your credit card number to someone you shouldn't than by like having your router tapped by the NSA. Uh, well, and also I think, I, I mean, even more immediately, the thing right now that people are most likely to get taken by is someone calling you on the phone and telling you they're from tech absolutely. support. Yeah. And it's like Microsoft will not call you on the phone. <laughs> To, because there's right. a problem with your office installation, that will not happen. Yep. They 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 have email. They're good at it. They know a lot about email. They'll send you an email. And mostly, they're like, avoiding you. They don't want to call you. They don't want you to call them. Like if if you ever get a customer support person who's like desperate to talk to you, that should set off all your alarm bells because that is not a thing that happens in real life. I'm just saying. Absolutely. <laughs> I like it. Um, all right. Any any other like common sense security stuff we should tell people? I feel like the advice we always give is like two-factor authentication is good. Do that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I would say, yeah, I mean, work on knife skills. Mm. Knife skills are always That's useful. Yeah. That's more of a physical security thing, but I tell everyone, you know, practice with a knife. Online knife a skills. Times a week. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like it. All right. We should go. Russell, thank you. This has been very fun and enlightening. And uh, if anybody ever wants to talk for many, many hours about pseudo-random number generators, I now have all of this information <laughs> in my head and nothing to do with it. I know which ones are good. I know which ones are bad. I have a lot of thoughts. But anyway, follow all of us on Twitter. There's a ton more good cybersecurity stuff we've done at The Verge the last couple of weeks. And always, because it is always Cybersecurity Week on TheVerge.com. Uh, Russell is Russell Brandom on Twitter. Neilai is Reckless on Twitter. I'm Pierce on Twitter. Thank you for listening. This is The Vergecast. We will be back on Wednesday and Friday with our regularly scheduled programming. We will see you then. Rock and roll. Thanks to Canva for their support. Canva wants to make your presentations come as easy as those thoughts that pass through your head. And thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You can generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work.